Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Today is the day we land our series on the life of Joseph. And I just want to say that as we kind of walk through this and kind of walk through today, and I pray that uh, this would be a series that we have become even even more faithful or fruitful disciples of Jesus toward our families and neighbors and our friends, even when it's hard. And so today, as we're going to kind of walk through this again, but we're going to talk about it. And I, I, just, I just pray that all those years of relationship and family life today... Um, that it, we might look and live into the story of Joseph in a new way, maybe in a different way than we didn't think about before, and offer ourselves a way forward together in our situations and circumstances. And as maybe you hear this morning, you're thinking about your own family that comes to mind right now, your extended family, your situation, and what it means for you and the relationships you have, and live into those. And you may be sitting there today asking, is there any chance for a better tomorrow? Is there any chance for my family for a better tomorrow? And faces and folks come up on the screen of your imagination and your mind get placed in the forefront as soon as we ask that question. Folks walking through very real hurts, whether you've been maybe cruelly hurt through relationship, a broken relationship, maybe it's been divorce, maybe it's been betrayal, or the friends that have wronged you. Is there any chance for a better tomorrow? Is there any hope for a future for my family? At the root of the human experience is your heart and mine that's been broken and betrayed and shattered. And we think, is there a future that is better for my family? Will there be a better and brighter day for a future for my family? Is reconciliation possible? I believe that there is, and I believe that it is possible. And it's not just blind optimism either. It's true. There are genuine tomorrows, hopeful tomorrows for our families that are possible. Because Joseph gives me great hope that there is, and that there is a great future out there. There's a future for you, not just for your families, but for us individuals too, who may need to hear this very day on what feels like a very bleak future for you and your family. I just want you to know there's genuine hope for you today and your families. And the story of Joseph is a story about a family. And we started this because many of us are walking through very deep family hurts and broken relationships. And some of us are walking through very positive honoring family relationships. But many of us are walking through very deep and very deep broken relationships with our families. And I'm trusting that God's going to do, and God will do, a deep restorative work in our families through the very real stuff of the Bible and the very real stuff of Christianity would come to your place of being. This is a real God, real relationships, that there's a God who is weaving a plan in your family and your friends and a family behind all those strained relationships in general. God's going to do a great deal of healing in our families, even long after this series comes to an end and as we've landed the plane on Joseph. So if you would like to go there this morning in the Bible in front of you, page 35, the Bible in front of you, just want to hold your finger there or hold a placeholder there, hold it open. Uh, Hey, we at this church value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures, and I pray that you would find one. Uh, If it's not your, this is not your home church, you would find one that does the same, preaches and teaches the scriptures 
faithfully. And so it's on page 35. It's also going to be on the screen behind me in just a moment. So big picture of the story of Joseph. I just want you to kind of think about this. And as you kind of, if you have never heard of the story of Joseph in your life, I just kind of hope that this picture helps you think about the story in a very real sense. And so the story is about a family and how a family walked through some very deep family hurt. Very deep family hurt and secrets and sin and lies that crippled this family for an over 20 years. And it's also about God. <laughs> and despite how sometimes we may think our families are broken or messed up or mangled and messy, life can get that there's a God weaving redemption. And there's a bigger God weaving a story of redemption through it and over it and through your family. So point being, this morning, if you feel like your family's messy, you're in good company. Because Joseph's family was messy. And it's in the very first book of the Bible. And it's in the beginning of the Bible. And I think that's for a reason. Because the Bible's telling us life as it really is. So it's in the Bible, very first book of the Bible. And Joseph and this story is telling us life as it really, really is. And so Joseph was a, from a big family of 12. And, so, which is, and his father loved him, loved Joseph, and overtly did. And it was wrong. His father loved him more than all the other brothers. And Joseph gets this fancy robe. Uh, some translations say it's a kind of a colorful robe, gets a really fancy robe that no one else has. And Joseph gets these God-given dreams from God. It's an interesting beginning. And so he gets these dreams from God. And I would encourage you to read that in chapter 37 in Genesis as well. And so this Joseph story begins with this family being riddled with envy and jealousy and things spiral out of control from there. And so his brothers don't like the fact that he's had these dreams and and that he has this fancy robe, and so they plot his own murder. It's this plot to, to cover up this, the, 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 this murder, and they fake that murder to their father, and it's just this crazy story uh, of how God brings this whole thing together. But, this, but while the brother, so he fakes this own murder, and so one evening while the brothers are at the dinner table, they sell him to some merchants who were passing by, um, he's thrown into a pit before that, and they sell him to some merchants passing by, and then those merchants take him all the way to Egypt, and that's where a lot of the story of Joseph happens, is in Egypt. And so then he gets in front of Pharaoh, he gets raised to all the highest of courts in the Egyptian courts, and Pharaoh has these dreams, and Joseph interprets those dreams, and Joseph gets placed in charge of Pharaoh's palace and gets second in command, and he's placed in, he interprets these dreams, and those dreams Joseph had came to fruition. There's this seven-year famine in the land, and it causes widespread devastation. And so that's when the brothers, they come from their homeland in Canaan to, e to Egypt, because Egypt is where all the food was. There's this widespread famine, and this 20-year after this 20-year reunion happens, it was 20 years ago when they sold him, 20 years of all these wounds being festered and 20 years of hurt being happened, and there's a reunion with the brothers as well. And it causes the brothers to want to hesitate, to want to go to Egypt, even though they're in the midst of a famine. And so we talked about that they have this reunion in, in Egypt, and there's this, there's this banquet, and there's Joseph... The brothers don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. 20 years had happened, and he's second in command. He's in the Egyptian courts. And yet, after all those years, after all of what his brothers had done to him, after all the hurt that they caused, Joseph still wanted to serve his family and serve his brothers. And I would imagine this was a very good meal. Like, think of like the best meal that you have ever had 
to another level. And now I've got everyone thinking about what you're having for lunch after church. Okay, but think about the best meal that you have ever had and times that by two. This is the highest of courts in the Egyptian courts, and I imagine this was a feast. And yet, here is Joseph serving his brothers after all of those years of hurt, after all of those things, this is in 20 years, God was beginning to shine a light on these brothers, on their history, on their past. And this was a, this was a collective kind of, God was kind of collectively showing them that there's a better future, and he was exposing what happened to them in order that they could walk in a new day of freedom as well. And there's points on the road of repentance on this journey back to Joseph. There's points that they are on the right direction and that God was moving this family toward genuine repentance toward one another and toward Joseph. And it doesn't mean that this is easy. It doesn't mean that family life is easy. It doesn't mean that reconciliation is easy. It doesn't mean that repentance is necessarily easy either. But it does mean that God does intend for us to live into this and to live into the reality of walking with our families and walking in, in newness of our families. So we said this a couple weeks ago regarding the story of one of the brothers was named Judah, and Judah gives this big, long speech. So what would it look like as a church, as disciples of Jesus, to not give up on people, even if they're hard to love. What would it really look like, church, to not give up on people, even if they're hard to love? And there's one of the brothers, his name is Judah. You can read that as a couple chapters, chapter before this, and Judah makes this very long speech regarding of what's happened. And they still at this point don't recognize Joseph and it's an emotional speech. And I'm just wondering, and Judah gives this big long speech regarding all that's happened. And he doesn't even necessarily tell a lot of the truth in this, in this speech, in this story. But I'm just wondering, do we have a Judah in our life, and our family, that maybe isn't telling fully the truth, but is there a Judah in your life? Is there a Judah in your family? Is there a Judah and part of this family circles? And I mean, it was 20 some odd years ago that Joseph at this point and Joseph at the age of 17, not on the throne of Egypt, he's in the bottom of a pit at this point and his voices are ignored and Judah is one of those players in that. Could have been avoided. And 22 years later, it's Judah. It's Judah down on his knees before Joseph and trying to keep Benjamin, his father's other favorite son, out of slavery. And it was Judah offering himself as a slave to Joseph. So if you're in the shoes of Joseph, how might you feel in this moment? Would you lord it over Joseph? Would you lord it over Judah? Would you, would you take advantage of this position that he's in, the position of power? How much grace would it take not to lord that over your brother or sister or in-laws or parents? And it's not just simply Judah or Joseph anymore. It's people in our families, our family portraits. Those closest to us, the cast of characters in our broken families and family histories. What will we do in a similar occurrence? Will we offer healing grace or shaming guilt? One solution brings life, and while the other solely deals in the demise of all of our current and former aspirations for a family. What Joseph did is known to us and invited them back in. How will we proceed?
You see, people can be very quite complicated and at times difficult to love. And it's not easy. Sometimes people contradict themselves. And people go this way and they go that way. And on that side of Joseph, Joseph still loved those brothers after all those years of strain and hardship that they put on him. Let's go to the text this morning. Genesis 45, we're going to start in verse 1. It's on the screen behind me. It's also in the Bible in front of you. Verse 1 starts like this. Then Joseph, this is kind of the grand kind of finale with this story. Then Joseph could, not, could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and that Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother who? Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be what? Angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to what? Save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Like, what causes somebody to say that? <laughs> somebody who's been like dramatically changed or dramatically have walked with God. Don't be angry with yourselves for sending me here. Would we not like not have that response? Let's just be honest with ourselves. For two years now, there had been a famine in the land, and in the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to, to what? Save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but who? God. Let's say it again. But who? God. Okay, we're awake. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me what? Lord of all Egypt, come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near to me, you and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so my brother Benjamin, that this is really who I am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Can we talk about forgiveness today? I recently came across a quote, and I wrote down, and I've never forgotten it, it said, we live in an age where everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. It's a scary world to live in. There's often this sense in which we forgive someone, then we're like, well, justice is lost in the transaction. Well, they haven't gotten their sense of justice, so then I won't forgive. They didn't get what they deserved. 
What made Joseph this way, act this way toward his brothers? 20 plus years of being unjustly put and sold into slavery at the hands of your brothers, people closest to you, would no doubt increase some bitterness. Being placed in a foreign lane that you didn't choose, in a foreign language, in a foreign culture you didn't choose, your brothers unjustly and undoubtedly would look for revenge. But not so with Joseph. You see, Joseph recognized that his ability for forgiveness would determine whether this family had any chance for a better future. Forgiveness frees. And if you've spent any time in this world, you know that nothing short of genuine, Jesus-centered forgiveness can make life progress into anything resembling true hope. True and genuine forgiveness that comes through the cross of Jesus. With forgiveness, we cannot remake the past, but we can give it an honest look and move forward with hope-filled forgiveness that doesn't lessen the need for justice, but moves us forward. It seems as though our culture has lost the need for forgiveness altogether. There's a story in Jesus' ministry that comes in Mark, Mark chapter 2 that highlights this. Mark 2, it says, Mark chapter 2, it says, during, Jesus ministry, during his ministry, there was four, a group of four friends that brought a paralyzed man to this house where Jesus was speaking in order to get a healing from him. And it says this in verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. To everyone's shock, Jesus did not at first heal his paralysis. Instead, when Jesus saw their what? Faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are what? Forgiven. Forgiven. Imagine with me for a second, you're that, put yourself in the shoes of the paralyzed man, just for a minute if you would with me. You would have felt or said, if you had that personality, felt or said, perhaps, uh, thanks, but like, isn't it obvious that I have a more urgent need here? Come on. And if you said that, Jesus would have said, no, you don't. You don't. And it's Tim Keller, as his author, he says it this way about what this man might have been feeling. He said, if I, if I could just walk again, then I'd be happy. I'd never complain. I'd be content. But Jesus, as it were, is saying this, look around you at all these people, they all can walk. Are their hearts all filled with contentment? Are they all happy? If I only heal you, you will, only, you will be overjoyed for a while, but then you'll become like everybody else. No, what the man needed was forgiveness. Jesus saw his greatest need as something more than physical. It highlighted a very deep need and a deeper need that we all face. And Jesus was saying, I want to show you that the deepest need of your nature is for me. Only I can bestow perfect love and a new identity and endless comfort and hope and glory. And the doorway into all that is to know forgiveness. But why is this so difficult? Could it be that when it's all said and done, we don't want to forgive? We've got scores we want to settle. We've got vengeance. It's a cold, but it's a taste in our mouth that sometimes we find appetizing. And to be frank, there are times that we want other people to feel the pain of our woundedness. Is it any wonder that many of the relationships that we face are broken? How can we build any kind of sensible and loving relationship on uneven ground? 
In Matthew 6, Jesus is in the midst of a long line of teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. And it's all about how to live into the Christian life and all about how to live into the kingdom life that God desires for us, for one another. And mind you that this was to his disciples. This was to followers of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus offers us what's called, commonly known, maybe you've memorized this or have grown up maybe in Sunday school or whatever, if you've heard this before, it's called the Lord's Prayer, and it's a prayer that's to be embedded as a way of life as we follow Jesus. And in verses 11, 12, Jesus says, give us today our daily what? Bread, and forgive us our what? Debts, as we have also forgiven our what? debtors. And it's Jesus that places, notice in these two verses, Jesus places daily nourishment and bread in the same breath as needing our nourishment for forgiveness. And it's Jesus saying that we are to forgive those who are in debt to us. And Jesus seems to say that it's an ongoing need here. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven, as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness for the follower of Christ is out of a natural abiding relationship with Jesus, and that line assumes that we forgive, and we live out of this disposition to forgive, that of course God will forgive us because we are living and moving and breathing in this stream of forgiving people as well. We are to forgive those who are in debt to us. Why? Why should I do that? Because God made the first move toward us to cancel our debt. Jesus on the cross completely canceled the debt that you and I owe and gave us his son. That alone is worthy of us to forgive. We could not pay the debt to sin that we owed and God placed his son Jesus on the cross and the ultimate display of atonement for sin and debt that we could not owe, church. He chose us and he chose you. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, that debt and sin is not counted against us. Yet on Calvary, it was Jesus and the ultimate display of love paid the price. And it does not mean that God winks at sin like it's not a big deal. And it's just like water under the bridge. But it means that it did cost God the Father, His Son, to the cross. The harshest form of punishment in that day, cross. And we're reminded of the cost that it took every time we take communion together. Jesus' death serves as a reminder of the seriousness of hurting or betraying or offending someone. And when we forgive, we say that although that is painful or has been painful, I won't let it stand between us. Steve Elliott, author, notes it like this, the love of God poured into your heart and mind by God's grace alone is the only resource that can make such divine forgiveness possible. The enabling power to forgive is him loving me and his love within me loving you. I can forgive you without losing face because it is his face that matters the most. In reality, it's us that also has to receive forgiveness. We receive it because we understand that we also have done wrong. We also have done wrong. We have been unloving. We have said a harsh word. We have been unlike Jesus. We acknowledge that when we ask for forgiveness. Yet, we often stand in the way of not forgiving other people. Pride stands in the way of the elephant in the room at the dinner table that needs to be put to death. 
And it's pride that keeps families and friends from achieving wholeness and healing in relationships. Forgiveness moves us from bitterness and moves both, both parties toward peace. It doesn't mean that things will instantly get magically changed overnight. But there's a sense in which that stronghold and that relationship is broken. And that true and genuine Christian forgiveness is the only way to make that possible. In Matthew 18, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. Peter wondered how many times we should forgive. And so he says it, and it's recorded, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus was saying not that we forgive 77 times and keep tallies or 490 times total. He's saying that that has missed the point. The point is Jesus, the point is making here is not to keep tallies and scores on forgiveness. And when it comes to family life, we like to keep scores and we like to keep tallies. Yet, I'm reminded that for the amount of times we ask for forgiveness, we ought to extend it too. It does not mean we keep getting wounded toward a relationship that intends on taking advantage or abusing us. We can forgive and not fully entrust our heart to them. There's always a cost to forgiveness. We absorb the debt that someone else owes to us, but that's what Jesus did for us. In Philippians 2, we're reminded this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your what? In your what? Relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself what? Nothing, by, very, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. What does this all mean? What does this all mean? It means this, to receive Jesus' free gift of grace and forgiveness. Your debt has been paid for by God. We think our pasts are too broken or our sins are too great that God cannot handle them. But not so with God, who lavishes us with forgiveness and mercy so great that he pours it out on us. The Bible says God is rich in one thing. He's rich in mercy. Amen? We can extend that. If Jesus could humble himself to a cross, we can humble ourselves before our in-laws. We can humble ourselves before our families. We can humble ourselves before our friends. Forgiveness offers relationships a life-giving future, a life-giving future that we cannot be experienced if forgiveness can't happen. Could it be that accepting the reality of being forgiven, we make our Heavenly Father smile in approval? Could those wounds that we harbor that are old and painful and festering be the seeds of a life that has not yet lived, been lived yet? Could it be that we are released from our fault-finding and given rest from our restlessness? 
On New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech played UCLA in the Rose Bowl. And in that game, a young man named Roy Regal recovered a fumble for UCLA. Roy picked up the loose ball and lost his direction and ran 65 yards toward the wrong goal line. And one of his teammates, Benny Lom, ran him down and tackled him just before he scored a touchdown for the opposing, scored, I should say, a scored for the opposing team. Several plays later, the Bruins had to punt. And Tech blocked the kick and scored a safety, demoralizing the UCLA football team. And that strange play came in the first half of the game. In the halftime, the UCLA players filed off the field and into the dressing room. As others sat down on the benches and on the floor, Regal put up a blanket around his shoulder. He sat down in a corner and put his face in his hands. A football coach usually has a great deal to say about during his team at halftime. And that day, Coach Price was quiet. No doubt he was trying to decide what to do with Regal. And when the timekeeper came in and announced that there were three minutes before playing time, Coach Price looked at the team and said, Men, the same team that played the first half is going to start the second half. The players got all up and started out, all but Regal. He didn't budge. The coach looked back and called for him, and he didn't move. Coach Price went over to Regal, sat and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half is going to start the second half. Roy Regal stood up, and his cheeks are wet with tears. Coach, he said, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the university's reputation. I've ruined myself. I can't face that crowd out there. And Coach Price reached out and put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. Regal finally did get up, and he went onto that field. And the fans saw him play hard and play well. All of us have run a long way in the wrong direction. But because of the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, the game is only half over. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but it's only half over for you and your family. The game's only half over. There is a future. I mean, we look about how how long this family, it took for this family to come back together. The game is only half over because of Jesus. Amen? It's only half over. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but the game's only half over for you because with Jesus, it is possible, and that's not just some blind optimism either, but it is truth. Let me pray for us. We're going to play Chris's video if it's popped up. It's also on YouTube, so you can look at that. Pull that up there. I'm going to pray. We're going to play that. If you'll bow your heads with me.